0: Hello, and welcome to this special bonus Temple Law Library podcast in honor of Temple Law's 125th anniversary. I'm Julie Randolph, Head of Outreach and Instructional Services for the Library. In this episode, I speak with Professors Alice Abreu, Jane Barron, Rob Bartow, and Laura Little about how the law school has changed and stayed the same during the, dare I say it, collective 143 years at the law school as professors and, in some cases, students. So to get things started, let's talk about the physical law school. How have you seen Klein Hall and other law buildings change over the years?
1: Well, first of all, we have Klein Hall. <laughs> um, some of the people watching this may remember um, what was then called Reber Hall, which is just a little bit down Broad Street.
2: One, one thing that ha- hasn't changed is um, we always complain about the configuration of Klein Hall. That is that the faculty. Offices are in a horseshoe um, on the 6th, 7th, 8th floors for the, most, for the most part, and it leads less to like a communal environment. We don't, we don't really have a um, water fountain where we convene, and it tends to uh, sep- separate people. That has stayed the same, even though the, the place has been lovely, renovated in a, lo- in, in a lovely way.
3: Yeah, I would pick up on, on that just that last point, Laura, that I think um, the attempts to soften the brutalist architecture and the, the poured concrete aspect of the building, you know the wooden facings in the library and the creation of some common spaces for the students to hang out in, has been you, know, a real plus for the building, although, as you say, its bones uh, you know, are, are still there, alas, and
4: can't be changed.: And we have two more buildings. Um, In which we have one, obviously, is a classroom and administrative building. And then we have Schusterman, which is lovely, although we don't use it as a classroom building regularly.
0: Great. Yeah, it sounds like it was um, a pretty stark building uh, in appearance when you first started. (laughs) Um, So,
1: Julie Stark is is, an understatement. You could actually, you could actually see on the inside walls and the interior walls, you could see where the plywood had been used to, you know, you know, form the mold um, to pour the concrete. You could, you could see the the, the markings from the from the plywood.
3: <laughs> if if you if you use the interior stair, the I'm sorry, the exterior stairwells, the fire stairs, and you see how stark they were, that was the whole building then. Yeah. Um, everything looked like the fire stairs do now. Um, so everything that, that doesn't look like that, every, every um, particle board, every wooden facing, every piece of furniture is an addition and a change from the old um, total concrete look of the building
0: and
2: i understand there used to be a smoking section or various smoking sections is that right that is correct because i can say that as i was a student at temple law school i uh, i spent an awful lot of time in the in, in the smoking section um, it actually ended up being to my benefit in at least one way and that is that i met my husband in the smoking section of the fourth the fourth floor and he didn't smoke. Um, so it ultimately hit me that if he didn't smoke, why was he in the smoking section? Um, and you know, fi- finally, the synapse is fired. And um, we've been married 35 years, have two kids, and are very, very happy. So um, not all bad things came from the smoking section.
3: No, I, I have a, another smoking story. I was a smoker. Back in the day, we had the smoking section in the faculty meetings, um, and we, all, of course, could smoke in our offices if we wanted to back in the, back in the day. And then um, I decided, you know, in a bolt of good wisdom that I really needed to quit smoking, but I needed a partner. Um, so I found a friend, uh, Joanne Epps, um, and she and I quit smoking together um, in 1991 um, on the same day at the same time. Um, And there's nothing that builds a deeper friendship than quitting smoking with someone. And I will always be friends
4: with Joanne uh, for that reason, among many others. Remember there was a smoking, there were smoking rooms for exams and typing rooms. Oh, right.
0: That actually brings up a really interesting point. Um, So technology has changed a lot about how students interact with their materials, and obviously with exams, can you speak a little bit about the changes you've seen that technology has caused in the law school?
1: There aren't any blue books anymore for the most part. That's so, all the exams. We'd get, we'd get a stack of the blue books and you'd have to read through this horrible handwriting. And, uh, and there were a few students that typed in the typing room because obviously it was clack, 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 clack. And so the, the folks that were gonna clack, 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 clack had to all be together apart from everybody else. But that's all changed. Um, I just finished up grading, and I was looking at a screen, <laughs> scrolling through stuff on a screen. I,
2: it was really interesting when the students started to type. T- uh, most of the students started to type, um, because we thought, well, are, are, are grades going to go up? you know, Because we don't have to struggle with that handwriting. And um, I don't think it necessarily went to the benefit of the quality of the exam or the (laughs) um, scrutiny um, for us, because what happened was with, with handwritten blue books, I think that sometimes you could, lose the mistake (laughs) because you couldn't read the handwriting it would be kind of (laughs) hidden um and when it's typed you know you can run but you cannot hide it's right there in black and white and if it's dead wrong it's dead wrong um so it was sort of evened each other out it it certainly is a lot easier to read and that's more pleasant you
1: know know, the the handwriting the handwriting sometimes they were so it was so bad that we'd have to you know, send it back to the administration. They would get the student. They would get some, some uh, you know, a, a secretary to type, and the student would kind of read what they had written, and the secretary would type it out.
3: <laughs> Another big change, though, um, is with the technology, Is um, it used to be that if you had a research assistant um, and you were doing research, you had to be in the building. And the research assistant had to be in the building because the library was in the building and the only way to access cases and statutes and administrative regulations was to go to the library physically and and look up these materials and so when um, Alice and, and Laura and Rob will all remember that in the summers particularly you know we'd all be in the building and the research assistants would be in the building and we'd all go to lunch with our RAs and and sit around and on, on the grass outside and um, all that. But now, you know, we all, I mean, almost all of us do research on the internet from wherever we are. And certainly our RAs have no need to be in the library to do their research. And so it really changes the dynamic quite a bit. Um, I'm not saying the research quality has gone down, but it, it does change the dynamic.
4: And I remember thinking, feeling very fortunate to have been assigned to the seventh floor on the corridor where we all still live, um, because that was prime real estate in my view, because the, the faculty library to which you had to have a key was right off of our offices on the seventh floor. So if I needed to look up a case, I just had to go down the hall. I didn't have to go into the stacks of the library because all of the reporters were there and that's the only way you could find a case. Um, So that's, that's a long time ago.
0: Rob, you mentioned blue books. I think most law students now hear the word blue book and think about the spiral bound book where you look up how to cite a case or a statute. Can you explain what you were talking about when you mentioned blue books?
1: Um, it was a book that had a blue cover, and on the cover, the student would write their exam number. They would write the course, the professor, and their exam number on the cover. And then inside were, you know, were lined sheets, white sheets, stapled in the middle, just like a little you know pamphlet would be. Uh, and the, the students had to write their, their exam answers in a blue book.
4: Yeah, like, right, actual, you know, longhand manuscript. <laughs> right. And there was always, for maybe a three-and-a-half-hour
2: exam, there were maybe four blue books that, uh, exam blue books, that that students would fill out, uh, and sometimes they didn't answer the questions in the right order, or they skipped pages, so you're always worried about, number one, lu- losing one of the exam books as, a, as someone that was grading them but number two like making sure you flip through all the pages and found all the answers and the like you don't have that with with the com the, the
4: the computer printouts
2: that we get
4: i once had a student who had um handed in two blue books and they were one stuffed one on you know into the other and as instructed it had blue book Uh, book one of two and then book two of two and book one of two was a fabulous exam it was clearly going to be an A and I you know looked forward to opening book two of two and I opened book two of two it was about half the exam and there was chicken scratch and it was like what happened um I called Ouija then our dean of students like uh like there's something amiss here like can we do anything about this And, um, you know, she did contact the students, we couldn't, the student, we couldn't do anything about it. It turned out the student had marked the blue books and marked the blue book as scratch, but then ended up writing the second part, you know, the second half of the exam on the book that she marked as scratch. And she handed in the books that she had labeled book one of one and book two of two. And she still had the book that was marked as scratch and had the, you know, the second half of the exam, which was equally wonderful, <laughs> but of course, you know, by that time, the the code, I, I couldn't grade it because it wouldn't have been anonymous. Um, I think you all it, remember this. It broke my heart. I mean, it was, it was terrible, and apparently she had, the student had something like a 3.9 GPA walking into my tax course, and she ended up with a B because it was, you know, it was good. But it helped her GPA and it was so heartbreaking that this was probably in my third or fourth year of teaching and I've now been teaching for over 35. And I, it still breaks my heart. Wouldn't happen so what today. I,
3: what I remember was, I can't remember who, Rob, maybe you will remember. Somebody had their, some, some professor, one of our colleagues had their exams, their physical blue book exams in, their, in the trunk of their car and the car was robbed and the blue books were taken. And of course, this was not exam soft. There was no other record of the exam. So um, the exams could not be graded. And of course, all of us you know, felt bad for the students who had to get administrative credit, but we were all like, oh my gosh, could somebody like rob my car so that I don't have to grade my exams? Um, but now, now if that happened, right, we would just, there's a physical, there's a technological fix. The exams can be recovered. Um, you know, no matter how many times they robbed the physical exams, you'll still have to grade them.
2: <laughs>
1: right. That's true. The story, I can't remember all the details now, but it was actually the the, the, the summer program in Rome and, and, the, and the blue books got shipped back. Maybe you'll remember, Alice, and something like there were tire tracks on the, it. The, some...
4: the box <laughs> fell off, they were FedEx back um, and because they were blue books, right? So they had to be physically shipped back to Philadelphia and uh, um, there were two boxes of blue books, and one of them fell off, apparently fell off the track, and we got the box, and there were a couple of exams missing, but there was you know, like mud and tire tracks.
1: Oh, well, the good old, the good old days.
0: <laughs> Speaking a little bit about the grades right then made me think um, the curve is obviously on a, the forefront of a lot of students' minds. Has the curve been pretty much the same the entire time you've been here. Has it shifted? Has policy? It has
4: shifted, shifted? It has shifted and I think Rob is is probably the, the best person to speak to that.
1: Oh, it it it, it certainly has. It certainly has. Um, there were a whole lot more very low grades when I first started teaching. A lot more very low grades. A student could literally finish up with a with a like a B plus, maybe an A minus. And have the highest cumulative average in the class, and that's not that's not the truth anymore. Although I still think the Temple grading is actually a lot lower, a lot less inflated, if that's the word, uh, than it's true at a lot of law schools. In fact, I know that's the case.
2: And and didn't we change it because? we were worried that we were doing a detriment to our students. That's right. Um, as employers were looking at transcripts from other law schools. Right. Um, I
4: think the one thing that hasn't changed about grading, and I, I think it is wonderful that it hasn't changed, and I hope it never changes, at least not as long as I'm teaching, and that's the anonymous grading system. Well, okay. I think whoever invented that um, is, is just a stroke of genius because it is a wonderful, wonderful thing, and we still do it.
0: Um, shifting topics a little bit, um, how have you seen the faculty change or the faculty hiring process change in the time you've been at <laughs> <in Ottawa>? um, law?
1: <laughs> it has changed a lot. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be on this faculty today, for sure, for sure, for Me sure. Me neither. Sure. I, wouldn't yeah, have gotten go, tenure. Oh. I wouldn't have gotten tenure on this faculty right? for the things that I, you know, submitted back way back in the 1970s when I, when I got tenure. So. I-
3: I think only Laura would have gotten hired. Um, Thank <laughs> you, <would> have, <laughs> have.
1: She would have. She would have for yeah. Sure. <laughs>
3: um, but I think you know, it's it's certain things have changed, but certain things have stayed the same. Um, you know, we've changed the way we hire in terms of what we expect our entering faculty to have done. Um, most most of our faculty who begin now, in addition to some work experience, they have um, usually written a an article or maybe two. Um, I'm talking about entry-level professors. I think we're a lot more uh, sort of disciplined about how we hire, and it's less, you know, sort of oh, this seems like a nice person who will do well here, and more, you know, somebody who will get tenure, and and we're and we're trying to predict for that. Um, but I think it's still the case that um, as much as we emphasize scholarship in our hiring it's really hard to get hired at Temple if there's not any evidence that you're going to be a good teacher. That's something that's really part of the DNA of the institution that, that, that the pref- professor should teach. And so it, it's still a really valued quality in the evaluations of our candidates.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And just sort of, you know, continuing on with the thought, the, the student-centered Aspect of the faculty really caring about their students deeply is something that was true when when I was a student here and that was a long time ago, and it's still very much, very much the case. Uh, a, a true true concern for students, uh, a, a, a desire to make sure that they're you know performing at the best possible level that they can. Faculty going out of their way to to help students. I, I think you know that that culture has has been around. For all the many years I've been here.
2: Uh, just to, to echo that, I, I've always said that uh, Tem- Temple Law School has a lot of heart. And I would say we, we, we still have a lot of heart um, for, our, for our students and for, for each other and to make sure that the institution is uh, running well for the, the administrators and the staff. Uh, there's, there's, it's still a pretty nice place. Um, and students do still fall in love. I see evidence of that in the <laughs> library from time, time to time.
4: But, but I think another thing that has, that has not changed, um, that the, well, I, I should rephrase that, um, something that has changed in some ways but not in other ways, is the international programs that we have. When I joined the faculty, we had a program in Tel Aviv, we had a program in Greece, we'd had a program in Ghana and a program in Rome. Um, and out of all of those, um, only the program in Rome is still um, active. Um, and although it hasn't, it hasn't been able to happen for the last two years, we got our fingers crossed for you know third time's a charm, uh, but, all four of us have been in Rome together in different configurations. Some of us teaching, some some not, and and for me that's really been an important part of my time in at Temple. Um, not only because I got to love Rome, um, but it, but I think it really um, allowed me to make. Friendships with colleagues in a way that would not have happened if we were just in Philadelphia, coming in to teach, you know, maybe getting together occasionally for dinner, but but sort of the intense experience of being abroad and maybe traveling on weekends and um, really um, has has made a difference in both my personal and professional life, and I'm I'm, I'm glad that that's still there, but it's also allowed me allowed me to uh, create bonds with students that I don't think would have occurred otherwise, um, and there have been students that have fallen in love during their summer in Rome <laughs> and gotten married. So we have, we have, out, we
2: have added the, the program in Tokyo and, Beijing. and um, the, the, the program in, in, in Beijing, so although we've shrunk, um, we, do, we do have um, the, the, the three robust uh, programs where we actually go there and um, work our magic as Temple Temple Law School, and we've also added a whole panoply of exchange programs. Um, students coming from Utrecht, people, students coming from Cork, Ireland, uh, and, and and the like. There's a lot of choices for our students as to where in the world they 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 they, they might want to go for a semester Puerto Rico and you know, all over Asia, all over Europe and the like.
1: Quite an international faculty. We really have a fantastic faculty with, the, with emphasis on international law and all its various, various dimensions.
0: Great. Um, let's talk a little bit about the students. Um, you've seen a lot of different groups of cohorts of students coming through. Um, have their goals changed? Has their, have their expectations
3: changed? What have
0: you seen happening over the years here?
3: I'll start that one off. Just uh, not so much the goals, but the demographics. Um, I feel that when I started, which was a long time ago, most of my students lived in and grew up in the city of Philadelphia. And now I feel like the school has changed in two ways. One is I think our students are far more national. They come from far more places. Um, you know, I have students from California and I have students from Colorado. I have a student from Hawaii, I, you know, right now, uh, in addition to the international students. Um, but also, I think that that a lot of the, our students now grew up in, not in the city of Philadelphia, but in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Their parents grew up in the city, but they grew up in the suburbs. And it's it's just a different quality of person. Um, you know, it's just a different, their parents sort of overcame and there and so their parents might have been the first we still have plenty of first generation but their parents maybe did go to college and now they're the first to go to law school that kind of thing rather than being the the first first at everything uh, so it's just a, a subtle change that i've seen in the student body and to be honest they're unbelievably highly credentialed uh, in a conventional way relative to um you know, in the past, and and I say that with no disrespect to any of our former students. Um, but you know the, the GPAs are higher, the LSATs are higher. the the kinds of achievements after uh, college are astounding. Uh, they're a really wonderful group to teach.
4: I think one thing that that at least I haven't seen change dramatically um, is the the number of students that have done something between College, undergraduate, and and law school, um, and you know, and I, I always thought that that was something that was very that really enriched our student body and our experience with the student body, um, and, and I think they're still there. Um, you know, I I hand out in, in the old days when we were in person, um, I would hand out five by seven cards to students, and I would ask them, you know, obviously to give me their names and what they want to be called, et cetera. But I would tell them to put in, you know, tell me something interesting about themselves, which would allow me to, you know, connect and remember them. Um, And I I continue through the years to be to be just impressed with the breadth of stuff that our students have done and the background that they bring to us, which I think really is is important to the dynamic that that we can create in the classroom. Goals. Go
1: ahead. I was going to say you you mentioned goals. I was going to say I think the goals are. Been pretty consistent. I mean, we have students; they just want to be good lawyers. They want to get out there and do stuff. They, they, um, you know, they want to learn skills, not not just the law, but how to use the law. Um, And I think those kinds of things have been very consistent through 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 all the years.
2: Well, one of the things that Jane said uh, reminded me of sort of another angle on you know, the, the background of students, whether they're first generation, whether they're the first generation to actually have any higher education and the like, um, is, and maybe Rob could answer answer this more accurately, but um, it's whether graduation has changed. Sure. I remember that our graduations have always been, Really joyous affairs, and um, sometimes a whole uh, like posse of, of family comes. They have they they might have T-shirts made with with the graduates' picture on it. Um, they may actually bring horns and hats um, so that so so that they can make a very loud fuss when the student comes across stage. Uh, we still have the tradition of um, a. A nuclear family member um, confer that's graduated from Temple Law School, confer a degree um on students. students bring kids. I mean, a recent student that graduated brought all eight of his children <laughs> across stage. Um, so I don't know if that's changed. it It doesn't seem to have changed in in the time I, I've been here. I don't know if that's changed.
1: It, from- it hasn't changed and it and it was it was in place long before you graduated. From this law school, or I mean that that has that has been that has been a consistent theme.
3: I do think that um, uh, you know the change from McGonagall Hall, where the students used to graduate, which was pr- quite small, to the Leah Court Center, which is sort of more elegant, um, has has been a, a distinct uh, alteration, not of the spirit, um, but of the you know it used to be that literally those families that Laura was describing would be like right next to the stage. I remember some student whose, I think it was father played the French horn. And, you know, when she walked across the stage, he just broke into some, you know, incredible horn thing. That's I think what Laura might be referring to. Um, And it was like right next to us. Um, Now it's a little bit more distant, but it's still, it's still, the spirit is still there.
4: So I, I know that, that, Nobody in this group will be shocked by the thought that I can't uh, leave without saying something about tax. Um, and, <laughs> and, yes. and, and so, apropos of that, I will say one thing that um, has not changed is Temple's excellence and renown in trial advocacy. Um, you know, many of the alums will, of course, remember Eddie Allbaum and, um, you know, his um, very, very untimely death. Um, and it's, it's really, uh, wonderful that the institution through, um, and, and the person of Jules Epstein and his staff, um, and his folks he works with, um, have continued the LLM and trial advocacy and the trial team, um, continues to be super successful. But now it has a little bit of competition <laughs> because The tax folks are this year have won for the third time in a row first place in the ABA tax section's Law Student Tax Challenge, um, which is not a trial controversy competition. It is a client counseling and advising uh, competition. And um, so two of those three wins are our tax LLM team, and one of those is a tax JD team. Um, and so it is wonderful, I, and I think that also speaks to the way in which Temple has continued its excellence in trial advocacy, but has also developed other areas of excellence in fields that are, are not you know, principally based in, in litigation, but more in um, transactional law. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it it would be a shame not to mention our international law faculty in
3: this regard, since we have a very, very strong international law faculty. We have a new technology institute. You know, I think our LRW programs are still ranked, you know, in in the very top tier. Um, So, yeah, we've expanded without uh, without compromising the quality of the programs. And Alice, who coached those tax, those winning tax teams?
4: Well, I coached the JD team and um, Andy Wiener, who's uh, the director of our tax LLM program, coached the um, LLM teams. And Andy is uh, also the director of our brand new low-income taxpayer clinic, adding to the clinical programs that Temple was also in the forefront of.
1: Well, that's a, that's a, That's another point in terms of, you know, change over the years. I mean, we've, we've always had a focus on, on kind of experiential learning. Um, actually, when I was in law school long ago, um, legal aid office was open and, and students couldn't get credit, but at least they could get experience actually working with clients. Um, and and that, that tradition has just blossomed. I mean, the the, the types of, of experiential opportunities for students is just, just amazing in, in, in all kinds of
4: the Scheller Center, the creation of the Scheller Center and the clinics that are run, being run out of that is, um, you know, that was under Joanne's tenure as Dean, but I think that's been a very significant and important addition. And Going strong.
0: So let's talk a little bit then about the fantastic LRW program that Temple has and how you've seen that change or develop over the years.
1: LRW used to be sort of a an add-on to the curriculum. Um, it, it was taught by by attorneys um, who cared very much about teaching students to write, but had no, no training in that skill whatsoever. Uh, and of course, we're very busy folks. Uh, so they would, they would, you know, they would come up and teach the, the legal writing. Um, uh, and, you know, it was, it was fine, but it, it wasn't, certainly wasn't great. Uh, and then we finally went to a program where we, we actually have colleagues who are full-time law professors who specialize in this area like other law professors specialize in their areas. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that, that turnaround was absolutely amazing. I mean, we just have fantastic colleagues uh, on our LRW you know, contingent. Uh, and, and the students benefit greatly. And now we have some advanced courses, which we never used to have, right, Julie? Right. As a person who teaches one of them, um, which, is, which also just adds, adds a, a, another dimension. I mean, writing is so important, and it was back in my day as a student, it was sort of, a, it was sort of an add-on. Now it's a, a central core part of the, of the curriculum.
4: Another piece of that is that um, sort of in tandem with uh, professionalizing the LRW program and having folks that are you know that, that that think about legal writing pedagogy and write about legal writing pedagogy et cetera, we also increased the writing requirement for graduation because um, it had been only one you know sort of traditional research paper, and um, some of us felt that. Um, before students attempted to write that, you know, long law review-ish research paper, um, that having practice at uh, not only writing shorter, but different types of writing, including letters to clients and, um, and, and to be critiqued. Um, and in, in order to make that uniform, the writing requirement now has two components. One is the analytical sort of more traditional long paper, but what we've, come to call a serial writing experience. And that is a course in which students write multiple shorter pieces throughout the semester and get critiqued. And obviously the idea is that that causes improvement. Um, and and I, I teach one of those courses and it is really rewarding to see the growth that you can see in the space of a semester when you know a student has an opportunity to to write and rewrite and, and actually absorb and operationalize what I hope they're learning. I
3: would add also that you know, the types of writing that is, are being taught by LRW have changed. Um, you know, it used to be everything was about the memo, there was a memo and a brief, and I think those are still in the curriculum, but things like writing an email, um, you know, the skills that you need in today's world uh, you know, our, our, our colleagues have brought those skills into the, the class, which I think is really important. I also think, you know, while we're on this subject, you know, the expansion of our and professionalization of our clinical offerings is something to be thought about. Um, it used to be that there was there was one day a week that students did clinicals and there was a pretty limited number of clinicals that they could do. Um, and now, you know, not only do we have an extensive array of in-house clinicals, um, legal aid office and, and so forth, but um, quite a number of external placements um, and these practicums that have started now where students go out and find positions in agencies or law firms and then a faculty member supervises their work there. So, and I think the number of our students who, who now are able to take a clinical offering Has really increased and and you know it matters because they they'll see have seen a client before they actually actually have to meet a client for whom they're responsible Um, they'll have written something for a partner or an associate before it counts Um, and i think that's been a real addition uh to to the curriculum at temple
2: to to add to the the notion of the professionalization of the faculty in both the, the clinical area and the, the legal writing area. The types of scholarly specialties that our clinicians and our, our le- legal research and writing faculty focus on are relatively diverse. For example, in legal research and writing, we have. A grammarian we have someone that was very very much focused on rhetoric a uh, couple members of the uh, of the faculty are focused very much on the intersection of writing research legal education and technology uh, which is a very robust area for for, for research you know using using um, so- social media as a as a means to Express a point or advocate, and and, and the like. Um, likewise, some of our cl- 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 um, clinicians are, you know, very focused on empirical work, um, as well as broader questions of society and the interaction of of law as an instrument of of social change in society.
0: Wonderful. Are there any other topics we're missing?
1: <laughs> I, I thought that the difference in sort. Certain- in terms of the gender makeup of the student body, I ought to get a mention. Um, you know, when I when I my first year at Temple Law School was 1967, we had a class of oh 120, 125, something like that, entering students, and of that, one was African American, one person of color, an African American man, and five women, five wow. women out of 125, one of whom was my wife. <laughs>
2: And, and a concrete reflection of that is that um, it, for a very long time, there were urinals in the women's rooms, and um, <laughs> there are no longer urinals in the women's room.
1: Yeah, well, you know why that was. We're happy you know, to know. Yeah, you know why that was. That, that was on the, on, the, on the second floor. There were right. no women's restrooms anywhere near the classrooms because, of course, women wouldn't be students. I mean, why would they need it? Who would need it would be the secretaries, and so they would be up on the you know the higher floors where the secretarial offices. Were. That's that was Klein Hall when it was built. In this uh,
4: well, you know th- this reminds me of something that seemed very that was in some ways controversial at the time, and um, I joined the faculty in 1985, and so this was probably not too long thereafter. Um, but uh, there was someone who had a there was someone who had made it really far in the moot court competition and was going to go on to the next round that was some kind of national thing and there were a number of us who mooted her and you know she was dressed up for court um, but she was in a pantsuit and that turned out to be very controversial and led to a whole discussion of whether she was going to put herself at a disadvantage because she was in a pantsuit and was not dressed, you know, in a conventional lady lawyer suit with that horrible bow at the neck. Um, and, And even though she was advised that some folks might be turned off by her attire if she wore the pantsuit. She, I think, you know, to her credit, felt that, you know, she did not want to wear a skirt. She wanted to wear a pantsuit. And she went on. And I, I wish I remembered the outcome, but I don't. But I do remember the conversation and how difficult it was and how much I admired that at that time, when it was a weird thing for a lady lawyer to not wear a you know traditional navy blue lady lawyer suit, um, she insisted on wearing a pantsuit. And from, from our perspective today, that seems like, my gosh, I'm describing the Stone Age.
0: So a lot has changed over the years here at Temple and in legal education and the law profession. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'd like to thank professors Abreu, Baron, Bartow, and Little again for their time and candor. If you liked this episode, you might be interested in our March 15th episode celebrating the school's 125th anniversary. Thank you for listening and have a great day.